Chapter 7 The Escape of a Princess Pat by George Pearson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. We were then escorted under heavy guard out over the fields in the rear, past the nearby farmhouse, which was simply filled with snipers. The latter, however, did not shoot at us, presumably because they might have hit some of our numerous guards. We seemed to be working right through the heart of the German army, everywhere the troops were massed. Along the road they lay in solid formation on both sides. If we had had artillery to play on them now, they would have suffered tremendous losses. The whole countryside presented a living target. All along the way they shouted, Schwein! and taunted us in both languages. Every shell-hole, farmhouse, hut, dugout, and old trench on the three-mile stretch between the front and Polygon Wood contributed its quota. The regiment had evacuated Polygon Wood on the night of the third. Across the old trail our fatigue parties had tramped new ones in the mud, up past Regent Street, Lancaster Square, and Piccadilly. We passed them all. We were marched over to the little settlement of pine-bough huts, which the regiment had previously taken over from the French. The men with me greeted them like old friends. Here was the sniper's hut. There was the commanding officer's. This was the hut in which the brave Joel Walden had gone west. That on the side of one where fourteen of ours had stopped a shell while they slept. Memories submerged us, made us weak. Even the guiding rope that our men had used to hold themselves to the trail of nights still held its place for groping German hands. Beside it lay the fragments of the French steinboards, jocular advertisements of mud baths for trench fever, the hotel this and the mansion that. One of my companions pointed to a larger hut, which he said our fellows had called the Hotel Cecil. The board was missing now, and no German signboard took its place. Their wit did not run in so richly innocent a channel. The huts lay just off the racetrack in front of the ruined chateau, buried deep in the remnants of what had once been the beautiful park of a large country estate. These huts were now the German headquarters. There was as much English as German talk there that day. Everywhere there was cooking going on, mostly in portable camp kitchens. As we came to a halt, one big fellow smoking a pipe observed nonchalantly, "'You fellows are lucky. Our orders were to take no Canadian prisoners.' The man was so casual, so utterly matter-of-fact, and there was about his remarks so simple an air of directness and of finality that there was no escaping his sincerity, unduly interested though we were. Another officer said, Englander? The big fellow said, Canadian. The other raised his brows and shoulders. Ah! The younger officer came up. Never mind, boys. Your turn today might be mine tomorrow. Turning to the others, he too said, Englander? No, Canadian. Oh, he appeared to be pleasantly surprised. He asked me for a souvenir and pointed to the brass Canada shoulder-straps and the red cloth PPCLIs on the shoulders of the others. But I had already shoved my few trinkets down my puttees, 
while lying back of the trench that afternoon. Scharf, however, gave up his Canada straps. The young officer gave Henry in return a carved nut with silver filigree work, and gave another man a silver crucifix for the bronze maple leaves from the collar of his tunic, and, more important still, he gave us all a cigarette, while he had a sergeant give us coffee. That, the cigarette, was, I think, much the best of anything we received, then or for some time to come. Since the bombardment and our wounding, our nerves had fairly ached for the sedative which, good, bad, or indifferent, would steady the quavering harp-strings of our nerves, and a cigarette did that. The headquarters staff appeared on the scene. They wanted information, just as ours would have done under similar circumstances. But these took a different method to acquire it. As before in the trench, they selected me for the spokesman. The senior officer, a general, apparently addressed me. How many troops are there in front of our attack? I lied. I didn't know. He shook a threatening finger at me. I'll tell you this, my man. We have a pretty good idea of how many troops lay behind you, and if in any particular you endeavor to lead us astray, it will go very hard with all of you. Now answer my question. His English was good. I cogitated. It would not do to tell him the terrible truth that was certain. So I took a chance. Three divisions. He appeared to be satisfied. The fact was there were none behind us. We were utterly without supporting troops. And Kitchener's army, how many of them are here now? Why, they didn't even come over yet, sir. Don't tell me that. I know better. They've been out here for months. But they haven't, I persisted. I told the truth this time. Yes, he shouted angrily. No, I flung back. Well, how many of them are there? The division yarn had gone down well, and perhaps I was slightly heated. My spirit ran ahead of my judgment. Five and a half to seven million, I said. He exploded, and called me everything but a soldier. I could not help but reflect that I had overdone it a bit, and I certainly thought that I was for it then and there. To make matters worse, he asked the others, and they, profiting my mistake, and following the lead of the first man question, put Kitchener's army at four and a half million, which was only a trifle of four million out. So I determined to be reasonable. When he came to me again, I confirmed the latter figure, explaining my earlier statement by my lack of exact knowledge, and so that particular storm blew over. The general came back to me again. You Canadians thought this was going to be a picnic, didn't you? He was very sarcastic. No, we didn't, sir. Well, you thought it was going to be a walk through to Berlin, didn't you? Why, no. We thought it was the other way about, sir, I ventured. He shifted. Well, what do you think of us, anyhow? Your artillery was all right, but your infantry was no good. I began to feel shaky again. However, he took that calmly enough. Oh, so our infantry was no good. We could have held them all right, sir. He ruminated on that a moment, rumbled in his throat, and abruptly changed the subject, in an unpleasant fashion, however. You're the fellows we want to get hold of. You cut the throats of our wounded. I denied it, and we argued back and forth over that for several minutes, and very heatedly. He referred to St. Julian and said that this thing had occurred there. 
I said, and quite truthfully, that we had not been at St. Julian, that we were in the Imperial and not the Canadian Army, and had been spectators in nearby trenches of the St. Julian affair. I even went into some detail to explain that we were a special corps of old soldiers who, not being able to rejoin their old regiments, had at the outbreak of the war formed one of their own and had been accepted as such and sent to France months ahead of the Canadian contingent. I added that I myself had just rejoined the regiment, having got my blighty in March at St. Eloy, and as proof of my other statements, I further volunteered that I was one of the second Gordons and, after the South African War, had gone to Canada, where I had finished my reserve several years since. He listened, but was plainly unconvinced. Another officer broke in. I can explain it, sir. These men were in the 80th Brigade and the 27th Division. Colonel Fauquier was the commanding officer, and Captain Buller took command when Colonel Fauquier was killed. We stared at one another in amazement, for it was all quite true. This finished that examination. We did not tell them that Colonel Buller had been blinded a few days before, and had been succeeded by that Major Hamilton Galt, who had been so largely instrumental in raising us. None of our wounds had received the slightest attention. Cox, in particular, suffered cruelly, but refused to whimper. Royston's head was swollen to the size of a water-bucket, and he was in great pain. We left them here, and never saw them again. Cox died two weeks later of a blood-poisoning, which was the combined result of our rough surgery and the wanton neglect of our captors. I do not think he was ever able to write his mother as he wished. At least she wrote me later for information. There was no need of his dying, even though it might have been necessary to have amputated his arm higher up. Royston was exchanged to Switzerland, and recovered from his wounds except for the loss of an eye. End of chapter 7